Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcasts at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can also subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at eric, E-R-I-K, dot Anderson at nllutheran.com. Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast. This is Pastor Ben. I'm hanging out this morning with Pastor Eric, and we're going to change our conversation a little bit this week. We're going to talk about the table. And as you probably noticed already, I'm hosting over the next number of weeks, and the reason is because Pastor Eric oversees our table strategy. And as you've been listening, you probably got your fill of us talking about the row, which is our large church gathering. So now we're going to shift it down into the table, and I'll have... Pastor Eric, explain what that is so you can get a good taste for it, understand it, and hopefully have a strong desire to ultimately join into our table experience here at New Life or in your own church setting or develop one in your own church setting. And so we're going to get right into it, and I'm going to ask Pastor Eric to just guide us through this. So what does it mean when we say table at New Life Lutheran? For those who maybe are less familiar with it, what we're referencing is our three-part strategy, where the strategy of our of our church is broken down into three main areas, the row, the table, and the chair. So the row that we just got out of is our big group gathering, primarily our Saturday evening and two Sunday morning worship experience. That's our row. So then um, the table, um, as we as we think about um, growing in the Christian life and as we think about living life together, the table then is that smaller group. So when we talk about the table here at New Life, we're referencing two primary areas, our life groups, which is our, um, you know, you may have heard it small group or cell group. It's our small group system where people gather together and um, study scripture, keep each other accountable, care for one another, and, and do those things, have spiritual conversation, um, etc. And then we also have our ministry teams, which are our lay-led um ministries um, such as serving the community, serving those who are homebound, serving um, the coffee and cookies and and treats and all those things, all the way to our seasonal um, giving opportunities, such as the Giving Tree, where we collect presents for underprivileged families, some of those things. So when we talk about table, we're really referencing those two primary areas, the life groups, which are our small group system, and our uh, ministry teams, which is our ministry-focused, lay-led groups. So I want to talk about, let's say someone has been in church for a long time, and maybe they've never been a church that has something like this, a life group setting or cell group setting or whatever terminology they use. And so you're coming in, you're the discipleship pastor. Part of your job is to uh, convince people that this is a significant part of their life, should be a, a significant part of their life that they invest into. So what do you say to somebody who says something like, I've gone to church my whole life, I participate every week, I, I receive word and sacrament, why do I need to get involved in something like this as well? It seems maybe redundant or it seems unnecessary. How do you 
explain to them that this is actually something they they should step into? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so I would probably just my my quick quick gun response would be it's not necessary. Um, it's not needed for salvation. Um, there are people who engage in word and sacrament weekly and have fruitful lives of devotion to Jesus Christ. Um, but then I would follow that up with saying, and we'll get, I think that, that you're planning on asking, um, the history question here in a little bit. So I'll just kind of tease it and then we'll, um, dig in later. Um, but I would respond with in our world, we are so disconnected with one another and really the only connection that we have with each other other than Sunday morning is on social media, which has stats show us, statistics show us that that is not the best place to connect because we filter ourselves, sometimes literally filter ourselves, um, but we also choose what we post and choose what we show others. So um, sociologists, psychologists, and and statistics show us that the higher the rate of, of social media use, the less connected we actually are to one another. So I would say that it's easy in the row. It's easy on Sunday morning, Saturday night in our divine services. It's easy to remain disconnected, especially because our church is so is, is larger. We um, have about 350 on a weekend. Um, it's easy to be anonymous, which has its benefits, right? We want that. And especially um, for, our, for our first-time guests, it's easy for a first-time guest to step in know what to do, um, know how to operate in that space and not be singled out, uncomfortably singled out. Um, so that has some benefit, but it also has some drawback because that allows you to remain anonymous when the Christian life has to be lived in community. Our goal is to have people know God and love God and also love their neighbors. That's kind of the, the work of the Christian church is to help people do that. So the, the best strategy for us is to provide opportunities and situations where you can love others intentionally and care for others intentionally. And that's the, that's the life group or the ministry team. That's the table space um, where you can uh, have a little bit more connection, a little bit more one-on-one connection, and you can have friendships. So the way that I think about it is that we have three, you know, our strategy is broken up, the row, the table, and the chair. And the way that I see it is I kind of see um, the rose purpose is the divine service. And that's kind of a Lutheran term, but it's it's the divine service being it's the place, it's the central focus of our of our life together as Christians. It's a place where we receive word and sacrament. Um, and and we've talked about this before, but the sacrament is the source and summit of our faith. It's it's what we center our whole lives around. And then the that happens every week. And then we have the next section, which is a little bit more personal engagement with the word, a little bit more personal engagement, I should say, with word and sacrament, both. And that's kind of the table. So I kind of see the divine service in the big bucket. Then we have a smaller bucket that's friendship, living life together intentionally. And then we have our smallest bucket, which is the chair, and I would call that family or personal devotion. So I I kind of see it as an increasing involvement in the life of Christ. I, I see it as increasing involvement in loving one another well. And so um, it's not necessary. Uh, you can live your Christian life and have a full Christian life without it. Um, but I think it's better to do it this way because you lower the risk of disconnection 
and especially in our world today where we're so disconnected from one another personally, um, it can help solve that ale um, that we have. Um, that this gives us more connection with one another and it gives us an opportunity to practice our Christian life with others and it will make us better. So um, it's a space for us to learn, to grow with other Christians in a safe environment, be held accountable with other Christians in a safe environment. So it actually helps us live our Christian life better when we can do it in these smaller groups. So as we we talk about that, obviously what we've just discussed is it's not necessary, but it's better. Um, So as we think about church strategy and and church life and the things that we do, is there anything in Scripture that shows us that there's patterns from the past or patterns in people's lives where they uh, stepped into practices like this to give give us credibility, some biblical credibility to say, hey, this actually has been a biblical pattern in the past, or we see it kind of lived out in the Bible? Is there anything there that we could say, hey, there's actually credence given to us by Holy Scripture. Yeah, so I would say, um, first and foremost, the New Testament, the entirety of the New Testament, was written in the context of smaller groups. So when we talk about church, we imagine big um, cathedral-type churches that can hold several hundred, and that would be like our building, um, would be this kind of building, the uh, space that several hundred people can gather together at one, at one point. That's what we think about um, when we think about church, are these bigger buildings that can hold people, or smaller buildings, but can still hold 70 to 100 people. But the entire New Testament, they, they didn't know that this, this kind of Christianity was coming. Um, they couldn't have. So in the New Testament, churches were organized in households. So whatever, uh, and it was usually a wealthy person who hosted because um, they had more space. So, you know, we're talking, these, these churches that... Paul wrote his letters to, um, that the gospel writers were writing their gospels for, these were smaller groups. We're talking 20 to 30 people. So don't think, um, when you think about the church in the New Testament, the we call it the apostolic age, don't think big big cathedral churches like we have today, or even, even smaller churches um, like we have today. Think about homes and home groups. So really, the small group of 10 to 30 people is is more reflective of what this the context of the New Testament is. So I just want to like when you read the New Testament put that lens on that these are for smaller communities one city would have several smaller communities several of these house churches. Um and then over the years just because Christianity became legal and eventually Christians uh, gained more power, uh political power, um that it wasn't necessary to to meet in these small houses anymore. So they grew bigger, and that's fine. So it's not bad to have bigger churches because, I mean, Pastor Ben and I both work in one. Um, so it's not bad for to have bigger churches. It's just a different time. So, so first of all, just the context of the New Testament is smaller groups, smaller churches, house churches. Um, but then we actually read in the book of Acts, um, Right after the Pentecost event, where the disciple or the, yeah the, the disciples were given the Holy Spirit and they preached the word, this says that three thousand were added that day, and then it says this in Acts chapter two verse forty two. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So I just want to point out um, here is that, first of all, we heard, the, we heard the phrase day by day twice in that section. So these, these Christians, these first Christians who were um, almost exclusively Jews at this point, they were all living in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem, they were gathering together every day. They met with one another every single day. And they had meals together. They um, broke bread and said the prayers, which is um, really un- unquestionable. Um, I mean, I guess it is questionable, but um, y- you can argue that that's the, the Lord's Supper, that they were having the Lord's Supper um, nearly every day with one another. And there were some, we know of some early practices that they did a little bit different than we do now. But so they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And they met day by day in their homes. And they also met in the temples. So we already early in the, the very first, you know, years of the church, we know that they were meeting in the temple. They were having this kind of big group, the row experience, worshiping God in the temple. And then they would meet in each other's homes, which is kind of this table group. Um, they would have meals with one another. They would pray for one another. They, had, they would care for one another. So it said they had everything in common. Um, people would sell their possessions and they would distribute the proceeds as anybody had need. And they um, ate their food. They celebrated the Lord's presence through the Lord's Supper with glad and generous hearts. And they uh, praised God and they were having goodwill, the goodwill of all people. So we know that these Christians were well-respected by their community. They were, they were joyful and generous in their uh, eating together and living together. And they met day by day. And it says day by day, the Lord added to their numbers, which means every single day um, or nearly every day, people were coming into this community and were being baptized and were being recreated um, in Christ. So early on, the very earliest um, movement of the Spirit included this. And so I think this is the context that we need to be reading the rest of the Old Testament in. We need to assume that all the other house churches that we read about in the New Testament um, were like this, where they met day by day, they cared for one another, they encouraged one another, um, they lived life together, um, they ate with one another, and um, and they they encouraged um, like faithful living with one another. They had goodwill and they were living well. Um, so this is the kind of the primary biblical text that we have, but I think that this sets up the, the context for the whole New Testament. Um, and so uh, the, the other letters that we read about in the New Testament um, are spoken to and written for this context of groups of Christians meeting together in houses, um, living with one another and caring for one another, being faithful to one another and to their community and living out their lives with goodwill um, for all people. So as we connect the dots from the, the early Christian church, as mentioned in Acts and, and the following books of the New Testament... And we fast forward all the way till today. Um, how have we seen that practiced, or maybe even not practiced, during some seasons of the church between that moment in time and this moment in time? Yeah. So um, when we talk about the kind of historical 
um, narrative of this kind of life together, this small group life together. Of course, we just talked about the early church, that this was the context they were living in. These house churches, probably 20 to 30 people, depending on how large the house was. Several of these um, churches in the same town, same city, those sorts of things. And as um, then when Christianity became legalized, because for a while it was persecuted and illegal, as it was legalized and as um, these church communities grew and as Christians gained power um, within the city and within politics, um, it just necessarily happened that churches grew larger. And suddenly they were able to... Um, create larger spaces for themselves. So they would, they would devote buildings to their gatherings. And um, at this point, un- unless you are in the biggest, the largest cities, we are still talking about most of the towns that these churches were in were communities of, of a dozen or two dozen large extended families. So even in um, the early Middle Ages, we're still talking about there's a context of extended family. So we're still talking 20 to 30 people. Um, and chances are pretty good that if one person or the patriarch became a Christian, that the whole family would become Christian. Um, so even as the church was growing, it was still in the context of communities and towns being smaller than they are now. Like they would not have known uh, of a place like Chicago of several million people living in one place all at the same time. That's still not how the world operated. Um, but then as cities grew and there became more metropolitan areas, um, what occurred was it was laid on the heart of some Christians, some believers that the church was kind of losing its way, losing its connection. Um, and so that's when the rise of monasticism comes up. So that's pretty early on in, in the church's life. Um, and for the Middle Ages, really, the monastic um, experience dominated the church. And we do know of the problems in the late Middle Ages that that the reformers recognized with this, that it kind of created a, um, a two-tier or three-tier um, kind of piety in the church. So there were some negative things that came out of this, but at the heart, it was it was good, right? Let's get people together. Let's pray with one another. Let's serve our community with one another. That's ultimately what these monasteries were designed to do, a place of prayer that people could gather together and devote themselves to prayer, um, to breaking bread with one another, and to um, serving their community. So that's kind of how we see it flourishing in the Middle Ages, this kind of um, impulse to get in smaller, tighter communities. Um, then the reformers um, kind of raged against that. Um, they tried to reform a lot of those things, in especially the Lutheran and, and Calvinist reform tradition. Um, monasticism is not part of the game anymore. Um, and what Luther tried to do was families. So he really focused on um, the families and the fathers uh, teaching their children. So he produced the small catechism that was designed for parents to teach their kids. So Luther kind of focused in on these like smaller communities of family. So he kind of tightened it to the family. Um, And then ultimately uh, what happened was there was this rise in the modern age of what's called pietism. And that's kind of the background that I come out of, which is um, the whole idea is that you have churches within a church. Um, Ecclesia in Ecclesia, a church, a little mini, mini church within the larger church. 
Um, and pietism was uh, really focused on devoting ourselves fully to Jesus, living out the Christian life with one another rigorously, kind of this austerity um, in the Christian life. And my background in Methodism was birthed out of that kind of pietist impulse. Um, so we can kind of see all throughout the Christian history, there was this impulse to do smaller smaller gatherings. Um, it was necessitated at the beginning because it was households. They didn't have common buildings to meet in. Um, later with extended families, then with mon the monastic movement. Um, in the Reformation world, it was with the family unit and then and, and the community. So there were um, times of daily prayer, uh, especially in Calvin's Geneva, it was required. Um, Lutherans have long had morning and evening prayer in the church, so we would even have families being participate participating in that. Um, and then the Pietist movement was a movement of creating churches within the church. So we actually see this small, small group impulse happening all throughout the Christian history. And sometimes it was successful, other times um, it wasn't. But most of the time, it had good and bad things kind of side by side, um, which is how most things are. Um, is that they're a mix of both good, good and bad. All right, we're going to get a little bit more personal now and, and maybe a little bit more practical for, for most people listening, is I want to hear how, as you've walked through your spiritual journey and experienced church in, in different settings, how have you lived out this concept of the table or specifically the term we use at New Life, a life group? How have you lived that out, participated in, in that, and just along with that, how have you experienced the benefits, or what has that been like for you? Yeah, so um, since I was in college studying for ministry, this idea of small group was kind of central to my idea of, of the church. And sometimes I was a little bit more radical with it than maybe I needed to be, some of those things. But really, ever since the beginning of my call to ministry, th this was a, a main focus of my, of my call, was these kind of this small group life, uh, this kind of table common life together. Um, so when I was in college, um, I actually attempted to plant a church. Um, and, and at that point, I was really into what's called the missional movement, um, which Pastor Ben and I have had several conversations about that together. Um, there are, there's good and bad that come along with the missional movement. So maybe some of you listening um, know of it, uh, but Hugh Halter, Alan Hirsch, um, some of these guys were, would be the big names that you would hear um, from the missional movement. And that's a rejection, essentially a rejection of institutional Christianity. Um, and I think that sometimes that movement goes too far or it identifies itself as up and against institutional Christianity, which isn't particularly helpful. Um, but I was really into that and so attempted to plant a church based on this missional life together. So my studies included... Um, producing a common prayer life within within a small group. Um, and we attempted to, to start that, and it didn't go out, it didn't, didn't turn out too well, mostly because of my own immaturity and, and lack, of, um, lack of leadership on that. Um, but we would do, uh, we, we would have these experiences at, in college of this small group, um, friends gathering together, and especially at a Christian college, it was very easy for us to gather together to pray with one another um, to read scripture with one another, to be involved in small groups that way. Um, so that was what I did there. Um, also part of my studies was studying monasticism um, and some of the benefits that it provided the, the Christian church um, 
And then, of course, going into into ministry um, as a Methodist pastor, uh, my goal was to kind of reclaim this uh, this impulse of having churches within the church, many churches within the church. So um, really my work has been living within the context of small groups, helping people pray together, helping people live together. Um, so it's been very close to my heart. Um, and uh, I can testify to the the power behind it um, with my own friends who in our college setting, we kind of had a, we had this small group that we were a part of. Um, just how important those people still are for me um, and how we still pray for one another and, and check in on one another and care for one another. Um, so really what we're talking about with this is that it's, it's really a place to develop friendship and lifelong friendship. Um, so it's a slow work because what, what, what we're not, what a, a small, what a life group is and what the table is, it, it, it's not an academy. Uh, the table is not a place to do inf- information transfer, um, which is oftentimes how we think about um, small groups. We treat them like Sunday schools, where there's a teacher and the teacher teaches um, and transfers information to the students. Um, and when we talk about the table, that's not what the table is. There, there is study, there is Bible study, um, and there is some information transfer, but that's not anywhere near the main point. Um, the main point is a group of people listening to God together and practicing the Christian life together, practicing living out and walking in obedience with God. Um, and so that's what it, that's the good that is produced, is lifelong friendships that we still live life with one another. So um, when uh, someone in our friend group um, had a miscarriage, um, then we were there for that family, um, calling them and texting them and checking in on them. Um, when... They, uh, when someone in our, in our group, um, which right now, cause we're all about the same age and we're all married, most of us are married now, um, and we're all having kids. So, you know, when someone gets pregnant and it's successful, it's exciting and we, we celebrate with them. Um, we, we check in on each other. We're all in ministry as well. So we check in on each other to make sure that we're being cared for by our churches, um, and that we're, we're staying true to, to the calling and, um, making sure that we, we are checking our hearts and, and where we're at um, with God. So it's a, it's a lifelong friendship where we live life together um, and care for one another through the ups and downs, which is really what that table is, is designed to do. Um, and the way that I like to think about the table is the table is an extension of the altar table. So as a church community, we gather on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings and we pray together we hear the word together, we receive the sacrament together, um, and through all the ups and downs of life, we are doing that regularly, all the time. That's our life together, centered around those things. And the table, the small group, the life group, is is exactly the same. It does the same functions, um, just on a smaller scale. So I like to think of it as an extension of the altar table, that it's just part of our life together, that we have friendships, that we care for one another and do those things. So um, that's very, it's been a big part of my life. Um, it's been a big part of how I've, um, how I've operated, um, how I've studied, how I've uh, met God and, and, and listened to him and walked in obedience to him. Well, as we close up uh, this conversation, hopefully this is what your appetite a little bit as we talk about the table and kind of flesh out what that is. That's not only biblical, but it's historical. And really, 
even a touch you got there at the end of how that actually can work in your life and how it can work for you and how um, falling in the patterns of those in the past and falling in the patterns of the early church will be incredibly beneficial to you. And so next week, what we're going to be talking about is how do we live this out at new life of why do we operate this way? And then also how do we operate? And so you're going to get a little taste of that next week. And so hopefully you come back Hopefully you're willing to give us another shot and uh, so you can learn a little bit more about how we operate. And so if you're a New Life member or a New Life attender, hopefully this will draw you in or maybe help you even understand the life group that you're in better. Uh, But if you're not a part of New Life, like I said before, hopefully this will give you some context to implementing a life group strategy into your church or uh, beginning to live that out wherever you are in your context. Because like we said, we've seen this in the past be effective for the early church. We've seen it be effective throughout the centuries of the history of the church. And so we always want to be willing to reclaim the things that have worked in the past and, of course, polish them up and shine them up for a modern-day context. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about next week is how do we do that? How do we put something from the past into play in the future and do it well to honor God and help us to experience the transformation that God has in store for us. So hopefully I will catch you next week on our next podcast. 